Welcome to the book reading program of 3ABN Australia Radio. The book, The Great Controversy, written by Alan White, deals with the history of the Christian church, starting with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and continues right through to our day. It also outlines the closing scenes of this earth's history and the principles that are at stake. What you're about to hear is a dramatized audio version of this book created by Nancy Hamilton Myers. To download your free copy, visit thedesireofagesproject.com. Let's listen now as Nancy continues reading from The Great Controversy. The Great Controversy, Chapter 17, Heralds of the Morning. One of the most solemn and yet most glorious truths revealed in the Bible is that of Christ's second coming to complete the great work of redemption. To God's pilgrim people, so long left to sojourn in the region and shadow of death, a precious, joy-inspiring hope is given in the promise of His appearing, who is the resurrection and the life, to bring home again His banished. The doctrine of the Second Advent is the very keynote of the sacred scriptures. From the day when the first pair turned their sorrowing steps from Eden, the children of faith have waited the coming of the promised one to break the destroyer's power and bring them again to the lost paradise. Holy men of old looked forward to the advent of the Messiah in glory as a consummation of their hope. Enoch, only the seventh in descent from them that dwelt in Eden, he who for three centuries on earth walked with his God, was permitted to behold from afar the coming of the Deliverer. Behold, he declared, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all. The patriarch Job, in the night of his affliction, exclaimed with unshaken trust, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. In my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. The coming of Christ to usher in the reign of righteousness has inspired the most sublime and impassioned utterances of the sacred writers. The poets and prophets of the Bible have dwelt upon it in words glowing with celestial fire. The psalmist sang of the power and majesty of Israel's king. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Said the prophet Isaiah, Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it. 
and it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And Habakkuk, wrapped in holy vision, beheld his appearing. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed. When the Saviour was about to be separated from his disciples, he comforted them in their sorrow with the assurance that he would come again. Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. The angels who lingered upon Olivet after Christ's ascension repeated to the disciples the promise of his return. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as ye have seen him go into heaven. And the Apostle Paul, speaking by the spirit of inspiration, testified, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Says the prophet of Patmos, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. About his coming, cluster the glories of that restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Then the long-continued rule of evil shall be broken. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. He shall be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. It is then that the peaceful and long-desired kingdom of the Messiah shall be established under the whole heaven. The Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places 
and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shalt thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called my delight, and thy land Beulah. As the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. The coming of the Lord has been in all ages the hope of his true followers. The Savior's parting promise upon Olivet that he would come again lighted up the future for his disciples, filling their hearts with joy and hope that sorrow could not quench nor trials dim. Amid suffering and persecution, the appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ was the blessed hope. When the Thessalonian Christians were filled with grief as they buried their loved ones, who had hoped to live to witness the coming of the Lord, Paul, their teacher, pointed them to the resurrection to take place at the Savior's advent. Then the dead in Christ should rise and together with the living be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so, he said, shall we ever be with the Lord? Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. On rocky Patmos, the beloved disciple hears the promise, Surely I come quickly. And his longing response voices the prayer of the church in all her pilgrimage. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. From the dungeon, the stake, the scaffold, where saints and martyrs witnessed for the truth, comes down the centuries the utterance of their faith and hope. Being assured of his personal resurrection, and consequently of their own at his coming. For this cause, says one of these Christians, they despised death and were found to be above it. They were willing to go down to the grave that they might rise free. They looked for the glory to come from heaven in the clouds with the glory of his Father, bringing to the just the times of the kingdom. The Waldensians cherished the same faith. Wycliffe looked forward to the Redeemer's appearing as the hope of the church. Luther declared, I persuade myself verily that the day of judgment will not be absent for 300 years. God will not, cannot suffer this wicked world much longer. The great day is drawing near in which the kingdom of abominations shall be overthrown. This aged world is not far from its end, said Melanchthon. Calvin bids Christians not to hesitate, ardently desiring the day of Christ's coming, as of all events most auspicious, and declares that the whole family of the faithful will keep in view that day. We must hunger after Christ. We must seek, contemplate, he says, till the dawning of that great day 
when our Lord will fully manifest the glory of his kingdom. Has not the Lord Jesus carried up our flesh into heaven, said Knox, the Scotch reformer, and shall he not return? We know that he shall return, and that with expedition. Ridley and Lattimore, who laid down their lives for the truth, looked in faith for the Lord's coming. Ridley wrote, The world without doubt, this I do believe, and therefore I say it, draws to an end. Let us with John, the servant of God, cry in our hearts unto our Saviour Christ, Come, Lord Jesus, come. The thoughts of the coming of the Lord, said Baxter, are most sweet and joyful to me. It is the work of faith and the character of his saints to love his appearing and to look for that blessed hope if death be the last enemy to be destroyed at the resurrection, we may learn how earnestly believers should long and pray for the second coming of Christ, when this full and final conquest shall be made. This is the day that all believers should long and hope and wait for, as being the accomplishment of all the work of their redemption and all the desires and endeavors of their souls. Hasten, O Lord, this blessed day. Such was the hope of the apostolic church, of the church in the wilderness, and of the reformers. Prophecy not only foretells the manner and object of Christ's coming, but presents tokens by which men are to know when it is near. Said Jesus, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. The sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The Revelator thus describes the first of the signs to precede the second advent. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. These signs were witnessed before the opening of the 19th century. In fulfillment of this prophecy, there occurred in the year 1755, the most terrible earthquake that has ever been recorded. Though commonly known as the earthquake of Lisbon, it extended to the greater part of Europe, Africa and America. It was felt in Greenland, in the West Indies, in the island of Madeira, in Norway and Sweden, Great Britain and Ireland. It pervaded an extent of not less than four million square miles. In Africa, the shock was almost as severe as in Europe. A great part of Algeries was destroyed, and a short distance from Morocco, a village containing eight or ten thousand inhabitants was swallowed up. A vast wave swept over the coast of Spain and Africa, engulfing cities and causing great destruction. It was in Spain and Portugal that the shock manifested its extreme violence. At Cadiz, the inflowing wave was said to be 60 feet high. Mountains 
some of the largest in Portugal, were impetuously shaken, as it were, from their very foundations, and some of them opened at their summits, which were split and rent in a wonderful manner, huge masses of them being thrown down into the adjacent valleys. Flames are related to have issued from these mountains. At Lisbon, a sound of thunder was heard underground, and immediately afterwards, a violent shock threw down the greater part of that city. In the course of about six minutes, 60,000 persons perished. The sea first retired and laid the bar dry. It then rolled in, rising 50 feet or more above its ordinary level. Among other extraordinary events related to have occurred at Lisbon during the catastrophe was the subsidence of a new quarry built entirely of marble at an immense expense. A great concourse of people had collected there for safety as a spot where they might be beyond the reach of falling ruins. But suddenly, the quarry sank down with all the people on it, and not one of the dead bodies ever floated to the surface. The shock of the earthquake was instantly followed by the fall of every church and convent, almost all the large public buildings, and more than one-fourth of the houses. In about two hours after the shock, fires broke out in different quarters and raged with such violence for the space of nearly three days that the city was completely destroyed. The earthquake happened on a holy day when the churches and convents were full of people, very few of whom escaped. The terror of the people was beyond description. Nobody wept. It was beyond tears. They ran hither and thither, delirious with horror and astonishment, beating their faces and breasts, crying, Misericordia! The world's at an end! Mothers forgot their children and ran about loaded with crucifixed images. Unfortunately, many ran to the churches for protection, but in vain was the sacrament exposed. In vain did the poor creatures embrace the altars. Images, priests, and people were buried in one common ruin. It has been estimated that 90,000 persons lost their lives on that fateful day. Twenty-five years later appeared the next sign mentioned in the prophecy, the darkening of the sun and moon. What rendered this more striking was the fact that the time of its fulfillment had been definitely pointed out. In the Saviour's conversation with his disciples upon Olivet, after describing the long period of trial for the church, the 1260 years of papal persecution, concerning which he had promised that the tribulation should be shortened. He thus mentioned certain events to precede his coming and fixed the time when the first of these should be witnessed. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. The 1260 days, or years, terminated in 1798. A quarter of a century earlier, persecution had almost wholly ceased. Following this persecution, according to the words of Christ, the sun was to be darkened, 
on the 19th of May, 1780, this prophecy was fulfilled. Almost, if not altogether alone, as the most mysterious and as yet unexpected phenomenon of its kind, stands the dark day of May 19, 1780, a most unaccountable darkening of the whole visible heavens and atmosphere in New England. An eyewitness living in Massachusetts described the event as follows. In the morning the sun rose clear, but was soon overcast. The clouds became lowery, and from them black and ominous as they soon appeared. Lightning flashed, thunder rolled, and a little rain fell. Toward nine o'clock the clouds became thinner and assumed a brassy or coppery appearance, and earth... Rocks, trees, buildings, water, and persons were changed by this strange, unearthly light. A few minutes later, a heavy black cloud spread over the entire sky, except a narrow rim at the horizon, and it was as dark as it usually is at nine o'clock on a summer evening. Fear, anxiety, and awe gradually filled the minds of the people. Women stood at the door, looking out upon the dark landscape. Men returned from their labor in the fields. The carpenter left his tools, the blacksmith his forge, the tradesman his counter. Schools were dismissed, and tremblingly the children fled homeward. Travelers put up at the nearest farmhouse. What is coming? queried every lip and heart. It seemed as if a hurricane was about to dash across the land, or as if it was the day of the consummation of all things. Candles were used, and hearth fires shone as brightly as on a moonless evening in autumn. Fowls retired to their roosts and went to sleep. Cattle gathered at the pasture bars and lowed. Frogs peeped. Birds sang their evening songs, and bats flew about. But the human knew that the night had not come. Dr. Nathaniel Whitaker, pastor of the Tabernacle Church in Salem, held religious services in the meeting house and preached a sermon in which he maintained that the darkness was supernatural. Congregations came together in many other places. The text for the extemporaneous sermons were invariably those that seemed to indicate that the darkness was consonant with scriptural prophecy. The darkness was most dense shortly after 11 o'clock. In most parts of the country, it was so great in the daytime that the people could not tell the hour by either watch or clock, nor dine, nor manage their domestic business without the light of candles. The extent of this darkness was extraordinary. It was observed as far east as Flamoth. To the westward, it reached to the farthest parts of Connecticut and to Albany. To the southward, it was observed along the sea coasts, and to the north, as far as the American settlements extend. The intense darkness of the day was succeeded an hour or two before evening by a partially clear sky, and the sun appeared, though it was still obscured by the black, heavy mist. After sundown, the clouds came again overhead, and it grew dark very fast. Nor was the darkness of the night less uncommon and terrifying than that of the day. Notwithstanding, there was almost a full moon 
No object was discernible, but by the help of some artificial light, which, when seen from the neighbouring houses and other places at a distance, appeared through a kind of Egyptian darkness, which seemed almost impervious to the rays. Said an eyewitness of the scene, I could not help conceiving at the time, that if every luminous body in the universe had been shrouded in impenetrable shades or struck out of existence, the darkness could not have been more complete. Though at nine o'clock that night the moon rose to the full, it had not the least effect to dispel the death-like shadows. After midnight the darkness disappeared, and the moon, when first visible, had the appearance of blood. May 19, 1780, stands in history as the Dark Day. Since the time of Moses, no period of darkness of equal density, extent, and duration has ever been recorded. The description of this event as given by eyewitnesses is but an echo of the words of the Lord recorded by the prophet Joel 2,500 years previous to their fulfillment. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Christ had bidden his people watch for the signs of his advent and rejoice as they should behold the tokens of their coming king. When these things begin to come to pass, he said, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. He pointed his followers to the budding trees of spring and said, when they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. But as the spirit of humility and devotion in the church had given place to pride and formalism, love for Christ and faith in his coming had grown cold. Absorbed in worldliness and pleasure-seeking, the professed people of God were blinded to the Savior's instructions concerning the signs of his appearing. The doctrine of the Second Advent had been neglected. The scriptures relating to it were obscured by misinterpretation until it was to a great extent ignored and forgotten. Especially was this the case in the churches of America. The freedom and comfort enjoyed by all classes of society, the ambitious desire for wealth and luxury, begetting an absorbing devotion to money-making, the eager rush for popularity and power which seemed to be within the reach of all led men to center their interests and hopes on the things of this life and to put far in the future that solemn day when the present order of things should pass away. When the Savior pointed out to his followers the signs of his return, he foretold the state of backsliding that would exist just prior to his second advent. There would be, as in the days of Noah, the activity and stir of worldly business and pleasure-seeking, buying, selling, planting, building, marrying, and giving in marriage, with forgetfulness of God and the future life. For those living at this time, 
Christ's admonition is, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. The condition of the church at this time is pointed out in the Saviour's words in the Revelation. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. And to those who refuse to arouse from their careless security, the solemn warning is addressed. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. It was needful that men should be awakened to their danger, that they should be roused to prepare for the solemn events connected with the close of probation. The prophet of God declares, The day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Who shall stand when he appeareth? Who is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity? To them that cry, My God, we know thee, yet have transgressed his covenant and hastened after another God, hiding iniquity in their hearts and loving the paths of unrighteousness. To these the day of the Lord is darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. It shall come to pass at that time, saith the Lord, that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. Their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. The prophet Jeremiah, looking forward to this fearful time, exclaimed, I am pained at my very heart. I cannot hold my peace, because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. In view of that great day, the word of God, in the most solemn and impressive language, calls upon his people to arouse from their spiritual lethargy and to seek his face with repentance and humiliation. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh 
for it is nigh at hand. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness to prepare a people to stand in the day of God a great work of reform was to be accomplished God saw that many of his professed people were not building for eternity and in his mercy he was about to send a message of warning to arouse them from their stupor and lead them to make ready for the coming of the Lord. This warning is brought to view in Revelation 14. Here is a threefold message represented as proclaimed by heavenly beings and immediately followed by the coming of the Son of Man to reap the harvest of the earth. The first of these warnings announces the approaching judgment. The prophet beheld an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. This message is declared to be a part of the everlasting gospel. The work of preaching the gospel has not been committed to angels, but has been entrusted to men. Holy angels have been employed in directing this work. They have in charge the great movements for the salvation of men, but the actual proclamation of the gospel is performed by the servants of Christ upon the earth. Faithful men who were obedient to the promptings of God's Spirit and the teachings of His Word were to proclaim this warning to the world. They were those who had taken heed to the sure word of prophecy, the light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise. They had been seeking the knowledge of God more than all hid treasures, counting it better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. And the Lord revealed to them the great things of the kingdom. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. It was not the scholarly theologians who had an understanding of this truth and engaged in its proclamation. Had these been faithful watchmen, diligently and prayerfully searching the scriptures, they would have known the time of night. The prophecies would have opened to them the events about to take place. But they did not occupy this position, and the message was given by humbler men. Said Jesus, Walk while ye have the light lest darkness come upon you. 
those who turn away from the light which God has given, or who neglect to seek it when it is within their reach, are left in darkness. But the Savior declares, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Whosoever is with singleness of purpose seeking to do God's will, earnestly heeding the light already given, will receive greater light. To that soul, some star of heavenly radiance will be sent to guide him into all truth. At the time of Christ's first advent, the priests and scribes of the holy city to whom were entrusted the oracles of God might have discerned the signs of the times and proclaimed the coming of the promised one. The prophecy of Micah designated his birthplace. Daniel specified the time of his advent. God committed these prophecies to the Jewish leaders. They were without excuse if they did not know and declare to the people that the Messiah's coming was at hand. Their ignorance was the result of sinful neglect. The Jews were building monuments for the slain prophets of God, while by their difference to the great men of earth, they were paying homage to the servants of Satan. Absorbed in their ambitious strife for place and power among men, they lost sight of the divine honors proffered them by the King of Heaven. With profound and reverent interest, the elders of Israel should have been studying the place, the time, the circumstances of the greatest event in the world's history, the coming of the Son of God to accomplish the redemption of man. All the people should have been watching and waiting that they might be among the first to welcome the world's Redeemer. But lo, at Bethlehem, two weary travelers from the hills of Nazareth traverse the whole length of the narrow street to the eastern extremity of the town, vainly seeking a place of rest and shelter for the night. No doors are open to receive them. In a wretched hovel prepared for cattle, they at last find refuge. And there, the Savior of the world is born. Heavenly angels had seen the glory which the Son of God shared with the Father before the world was, and they had looked forward with intense interest to his appearing on earth as an event fraught with the greatest joy to all people. Angels were appointed to carry the glad tidings to those who were prepared to receive it and who would joyfully make it known to the inhabitants of the earth. Christ had stooped to take upon himself man's nature. He was to bear an infinite weight of woe as he should make his soul an offering for sin. Yet angels desired that even in his humiliation, the Son of the Highest might appear before men with a dignity and glory befitting his character. Would the great men of earth assemble at Israel's capital to greet his coming? Would legions of angels present him to the expectant company? An angel visits the earth to see who are prepared to welcome Jesus. 
but he can discern no tokens of expectancy. He hears no voice of praise and triumph that the period of Messiah's coming is at hand. The angel hovers for a time over the chosen city and the temple where the divine presence has been manifested for ages. But even here is the same indifference. The priests, in their pomp and pride, are offering polluted sacrifices in the temple. The Pharisees are with loud voices addressing the people or making boastful prayers at the corners of the streets in the palaces of kings, in the assemblies of philosophers, in the schools of the rabbis. All are alike, unmindful of the wondrous fact which has filled all heaven with joy and praise, that the Redeemer of man is about to appear upon the earth. There is no evidence that Christ is expected and no preparation for the Prince of Life. In amazement, the celestial messenger is about to return to heaven with the shameful tidings when he discovers a group of shepherds who are watching their flocks by night and as they gaze into the starry heavens are contemplating the prophecy of a Messiah to come to earth and longing for the advent of the world's Redeemer. Here is a company that is prepared to receive the heavenly message. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord appears, declaring the good tidings of great joy. Celestial glory floods all the plain. An innumerable company of angels is revealed, and as if the joy were too great for one messenger to bring from heaven, a multitude of voices break forth in the anthem which all the nations of the saved shall one day sing. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Oh, what a lesson is this wonderful story of Bethlehem. How it rebukes our unbelief, our pride and self-sufficiency. How it warns us to beware, lest by our criminal indifference we also fail to discern the signs of the times and therefore know not the day of our visitation. It was not alone upon the hills of Judea, not among the lowly shepherds only, that angels found the watchers for Messiah's coming. In the land of the heathen also were those that looked for him. They were wise men, rich and noble, the philosophers of the East, students of nature. The Magi had seen God in his handiwork, from the Hebrew scriptures they had learned of the star to arise out of Jacob, and with eager desire they awaited his coming, who should be not only the consolation of Israel, but a light to lighten the Gentiles, and for salvation unto the ends of the earth. They were seekers for light, and light from the throne of God illumined the path for their feet. 
while the priests and rabbis of Jerusalem, the appointed guardians and expounders of the truth, were shrouded in darkness. The heaven-sent star guided these Gentile strangers to the birthplace of the newborn king. It is unto them that look for him that Christ is to appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Like the tidings of the Savior's birth, the message of the second advent was not committed to the religious leaders of the people. They had failed to preserve their connection with God and had refused light from heaven. Therefore they were not of the number described by the Apostle Paul. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. The watchmen upon the walls of Zion should have been the first to catch the tidings of the Savior's advent, the first to lift their voices to proclaim him near, the first to warn the people to prepare for his coming. But they were at ease, dreaming of peace and safety, while the people were asleep in their sins. Jesus saw his church like the barren fig tree, covered with pretentious leaves yet destitute of precious fruit. There was a boastful observance of the forms of religion, while the spirit of true humility, penitence, and faith, which alone could render the service acceptable to God, was lacking. Instead of the graces of the spirit, there were manifested pride, formalism, vain glory, selfishness, oppression. A backsliding church closed their eyes to the signs of the times. God did not forsake them or suffer his faithfulness to fail, but they departed from him and separated themselves from his love. As they refused to comply with the conditions, his promises were not fulfilled to them. Such is the sure result of neglect to appreciate and improve the light and privileges which God bestows. Unless the church will follow on in his opening providence, accepting every ray of light, performing every duty which may be revealed, religion will inevitably degenerate into the observance of forms and the spirit of vital godliness will disappear. This truth has been repeatedly illustrated in the history of the church. God requires of his people works of faith and obedience corresponding to the blessings and privileges bestowed. Obedience requires a sacrifice and involves a cross. And this is why so many of the professed followers of Christ refuse to receive the light from heaven and like the Jews of old, knew not the time of their visitation. Because of their pride and unbelief, the Lord passed them by and revealed his truth to those who, like the shepherds of Bethlehem and the Eastern Magi, had given heed to all the light 
they had received.